0: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com This year is the 10th anniversary of the podcast 10 years of designers and other creative types talking about what they do how they got to be who they are and what they're thinking about On this program Debbie Millman talks with Stephen Heller If I were to take something that was from the 19th century I would take elements of it that spoke to me and then transform it into something that had some relevance to the times it was created in. Here's Debbie Millman.
1: Stephen Heller is the closest thing to a regular on Design Matters. He's been on the show every year since we started this podcast. That means this is the 10th time he's been a guest on Design Matters, and each time he's taught me something new and utterly fascinating about the history, practice, and culture of graphic design. This won't surprise anyone who knows anything about Stephen Heller, but he currently has several new books out, and it's still only spring. We're here today to talk about one of the new books I'm most excited about, Graphic Style Lab, Develop Your Own Style with 50 Hands-On Exercises. Stephen Heller, thank you for taking a break from your writing and your blog and your classroom duties and joining me once again on Design
0: Matters. Well, I'm glad I'm regular.
1: (laughs) Me too. So, Steve, you start your brilliant new book, Graphic Style Lab, with a chapter titled Personal Style, Pro and Con, and you somewhat defiantly state, style is a precarious notion. Why do you feel that way?
0: Well, style gets a bad rap. When you think of something that's style-ish or stylized, it suggests that there's no content. No substance. And no substance. I, I say it's precarious because when people talk about style, they talk about the surface, when in fact, style involves the personal voice.
1: You state that sometimes style is substance. So I have two questions. The first is, how can that be? How can style sometimes be substance?
0: Well, sometimes a a thing, a graphic design or a product, a package, is about its look. It's about affecting somebody on a visceral level. And so the style is what you enter into the piece for. You're drawn in by that style. In that sense, style is the substance. In that sense, style may be something that is totally uh, radical in terms of uh, what's conventional in the, in the culture or as a paradigm. And so you look at that style as being influential, important, a milestone. And then perhaps there is some other content that you get into at another point.
1: Well, that leads me to the notion that style might be used when it is more substantial as a way to convey something that might not be there, but you're manufacturing to get you there. Do do you know what I'm saying?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, that's what I think a lot of branding is.
1: Oh, here we go. (laughs) This is a record. Two minutes into the show, we get a knock-on branding. No,
0: it's not a knock-on branding. It's a a tweak. (laughs) It's a tease. A little tease. (laughs) No, I think that style becomes a, a code. My favorite style, for example, which wasn't when I was growing up, was psychedelia. The psychedelic style was a code for a generation, But a particular part of that generation, sex, drugs, and rock and roll.
1: Your favorite generation, the greatest generation.
0: The great generation, (laughs) the ones who fought the war against war. And even though the psychedelic style was meant to convey information, as in rock posters or record albums, it also conveyed something else. It conveyed an attitude. It conveyed an ethos. And that gave it more gravitas, in my opinion, than if it was just surface texture.
1: But it was in many ways, and and you're probably going to want to get up off of your chair and wring my neck when I say this, but in many ways it was the branding of psychedelia that made it so recognizable. There was a series of constructs that were created, um, certain graphic devices, certain iconography, certain color palette that led you into the sort of notion of psychedelia as a platform.
0: Right. But, you know, there were two ways of looking at it. One is the originality, the origin myth. It just happened because people were stoned out of their minds and uh, this was a way. No,
1: no, no. I disagree. Things like that don't just happen. I mean, the original sort of idea of of how to brand something is to create some type of
0: deliberate differentiation. Well, I think the deliberate differentiation came about after the fact. I think that...
1: Well, I think that was copying. People
0: copied. People copied it and made it into something that was co-opted. But what was happening at the time was these artists were looking at art that existed in the world, and they said, I want to do something different. Victor Moscoso said... After studying with Joseph Albers, I don't want to do boxes. I don't want to do squares. I want to do vibrating colors. I want to do things that don't get read that easily. Now, that was a personal manifestation. That was something that he wanted to do that then became a brand. It wasn't intentionally started to be a brand. It wasn't intentionally done to create the movement. The movement grew around it. The brand grew around it. So it was organic, and then it became through observation, through exposure, it became something other. It became something bigger than it started out to be.
1: Yeah, I think repetition plays a part in that as well. It's sort of interesting to consider how the pendulum goes back and forth. You have something that is considered wildly radical, and then the the more people see it, the less radical it seems, because a lot of people have seen it. And so there's all that repetition. So what seems to be everywhere is no longer radical. And then it goes into the mainstream. And then everybody starts to embrace it. And then the early adopters start to hate it. And then the people that embraced it later get tired of it. And then we go and have the backlash against it. And then the pendulum swings in the other direction. And then we have a new style emerge.
0: who. <laughs> Yeah, it's very... I'm feisty today. It, it's very Darwinian in that sense. <laughs> it is
1: very Darwinian. Uh,
0: yeah, it's inevitable that once you start calling something radical, it's no longer radical. Once right. you start calling something avant-garde, it's no longer avant-garde. It's something that has been tamed already.
1: But interesting, once you call something dull, it usually stays dull for a pretty long time.
0: It depends. I mean, there's a lot of dullness that... Is seen in commercial art and the anti-modern commercial art or the pre-modern commercial art that, with a little tweak, becomes very exciting again. It wasn't until this year that uh, I started reappreciating mid-century modernism. What changed for you? You know, it was—it's something that I can't really explain. All of a sudden, I started looking at overlapping colors on type. And that led me to looking at book jackets done by people like, uh, Rudy DeHarrick and, uh, George Giusti, uh, Leo Leone. And I started having a real reappreciation. I mean, those are the best of them. It made me think that simplicity is, uh, kind of neat.
1: So the whole less is more thing is, his... Well,
0: once I start calling it less is more, then it becomes less interesting yeah, to me. That's true. That's uh, true. Once I start looking at it as, with, Fresh eyes. I get very excited about it. In fact, I've started acquiring lots of record albums from uh, Command Records, which I did a piece on in The Atlantic. And I just started falling in love with it. I think that might have been the moment when I did this piece on Joseph Albers record covers. Uh, I started looking at simplicity and geometry in ways that I had never seen before.
1: Interesting that as you were preparing to move residences and had a series of ephemera sales where you sold right here. quite a lot of really amazing graphic design history that you've suddenly decided to— Become interested if if you could decide to become interested in something in simplicity. (laughs) Well,
0: I had to get simple. And I think I had to get simple both in the mind and in the space by becoming interested in this modernist work that, of course, Paul Rand is an exemplar of. And I've always been interested in him and wrote the book on him. I think maybe it's symbolic of, of simplifying my living existence. So I can have like 130 record albums that look like this and it doesn't feel like it's taking up the same amount of space.
1: So what did it feel like to get rid of so many things? You you really did sell what was likely hundreds of boxes, a fairly large boxes of graphic design ephemera, posters, books – articles, entire collections of magazines. What was it like to see that leave your purview?
0: Well, Dr. Millman, I'll tell you. <laughs> First of all, That's a
1: nice sound it, it was
0: uh, frightening. It was anxiety-provoking, and it was panic-causing. And I would wake up in the middle of the night panicked what I was going to do with all of this stuff and where it would go and all that. And And the fact that I was losing it, that it was part of my... DNA. It was part of my body. It was, they may have been prosthetics, but they were tied on really well. Yes. And so I had this one revelatory moment where I woke up in the middle of the night and I had a panic attack that lasted five hours. And the only thing I could do to calm myself down was to throw things away. Wow. And I realized... There's some fun in throwing things away. So I became as obsessed about getting rid of stuff as I was about getting the stuff to begin with. So I thought... Sort of a nice symmetry to that. There's some symmetry, and there's a little philosophy and a little sophistry, and there's all sorts of stuff.
1: Do you regret anything that you threw away?
0: Well, fortunately, I didn't make any lists of the things I threw away, so I have no idea what I did get rid of. Every so often I think, did I get rid of such and such? And I go looking, and I find that I didn't, which (laughs) meant that... In my heart of hearts, I didn't get rid of anything that I really felt I would need for a project or for reference.
1: So when you were tossing everything, did you actually put it in big bags and then take it to the curb? Or did you just leave it in the garbage and then hope that maybe your wife, Louise Feely, might rifle through it and take out anything that had any significance?
0: Well, on that that particular evening or early morning, I put a lot of stuff in a garbage bag and threw it out the window. You did? Yeah.
1: That's a New York moment.
0: Yeah. Fortunately, nobody was walking by.
1: Was it, was it snowing? Did you get a big puff of snow coming out of the no, fall?
0: It, no, it wasn't one of the snow days. But, but I did enjoy taking things out and leaving them on the curb and watching as people came, picked through them and took them away.
1: Steve, one of the things I love most about having you on the show is how many pathways our conversations take. I want to get back to the second question I had about your book. You stated that style is often considered more important than substance. And when I typed it up to ask you about it as how can that be, I also started to wonder, well, is that really true for everybody? And is style only often considered more important than substance to designers?
0: Well, I think designers are the first ones, the first group that feel that style is more substantive than other people believe it is. When you first heard about design, whether it was graphic design or interior design, it was called decoration. I mean, for me, it was. The way I understood design was there was advertising and there was interior decorators. Everything else kind of didn't exist.
1: I didn't even know that there was such a thing as design as a discipline until my senior year of college.
0: But you were 12 when you were in your senior year.
1: (laughs) I was already doing design when I I realized that design existed. I didn't even know that it was a discipline. I thought printers did design. Yeah,
0: and that's what they did in the early days. When I started, I started as a paste-up person and became an art director. We didn't call it design. We called it makeup. And makeup means what? It means you put stuff on your face or elsewhere. So it's
1: decoration. It's so, And this gets back to what are you revealing or what are you allowing the observer to witness? Right. So if you're covering something up, if you're making something up, if you're creating substance from style, then are you hiding something or are you – creating more advantage of what that actual thing is. I guess it really depends on It your depends perspective. on
0: perspective and it depends on context and it depends on what you're being asked to do. You know, the title of the Paul Rand show is Design is Everywhere or Design is Everything. And whichever it is, it's true. Design is everywhere and design is everything. And so we can't talk about what's around us without using the D word. <laughs> uh, but when we add style to it, it becomes another... Category altogether.
1: The new book attempts to answer certain style questions through exercises, 50 exercises or case studies that showcase how styles are used and abused. Um and how they can evolve into a distinct design personality, even if that personality is only temporary for the designer. So they can sort of try different styles on and see what it feels like. Yeah, to they do put things. different coats and shirts and different hats kind of on. makeup, right? right? Different different styles of makeup. So the case studies also address the distinctions between personal and universal style, historical and contemporary style, one of a kind styles, and how lettering how type and typography can define styles. So I have two questions here as well. My first one is, do you consider this book a laboratory?
0: Well, I'll tell you, the book was originally going to be called Playing with Style. For some reason, uh, that title was trashed. And the publisher actually came up with Graphic Design Lab. And I said, that's it. That's the perfect title for this. It's rare that a publisher will come up with a great title. So this is a lab insofar as it invites the reader to play around with different elements that are drawn from 50 projects that exist in the world.
1: Do you think that there's a sense of acceptance inherent in... An experiment going wrong in a lab? Are you encouraging people to make mistakes or to try to understand this particular style from a new perspective or with new eyes?
0: Well, I think any laboratory is a place where failure happens more than success. So in that sense, I I love the term. You know, playing also does the same thing. You're not expected one way or the other. It's just something you do. The lab actually focuses it in more. Uh, there is a goal at the end of it. With play, you don't necessarily have a goal. Failure is inherent in this. I've, I did a book on design failure that you're in, not that you failed you got on the deadline Actually, succe- that, successfully.
1: that particular piece has been rewritten and repurposed for a lot of other entities. So as a failure, as an exercise in failure, it's turned out to be rather successful.
0: Well, and a lot of failures turn out that way. The failure of this title, playing with graphic design, turning into graphic style lab, was a plus. The fact that some of the pieces in the book didn't necessarily turn out as well as the designer wanted it was a plus because I thought it worked.
1: I felt that there was a sense of trying to eliminate a certain self-consciousness in the experimentation that you're allowed to mess up.
0: Well, not only are you allowed to mess up, you're allowed to borrow, you're allowed to steal, you're allowed to reinterpret, you're allowed to do things as long as ultimately... Somebody else's intellectual property isn't violated. Even though I said the word steal, I mean it as steal in a playful way. You take, you play, you, you interpret, you reinterpret.
1: Yet you emphatically declare that unless you are parodying or satirizing something, do not imitate what you see. How can you be sure that an audience will know the difference between a parody, an homage, or thievery?
0: Sometimes they can't you just have to accept that. There are clear points of satire or parody when something that you know in the context of one place is changed so that you laugh at it or that you groan at it or that you frown at it. And there are other times when you know somebody has done an idea that belongs to someone else. I I remember when I was looking at portfolios every day at the New York Times – Every so often, somebody would come in, not a lot, but every so often, and have work in their portfolio that I had seen before. In fact, that I knew the the designers who did it before. And I would bring this up to them and they'd say, well, I was uh, influenced by it. I said, this is an exact copy. It's a little more than influence. (laughs) And some people really didn't understand. That's because I think we are born and raised or at least used to be born and raised to look at art as something that didn't have the same value as other things. And it was free to be taken. The transformation part of that, uh, which is natural in all art just was forgotten or ignored by the person who was doing it.
1: I think that homage and parody works best when something is iconic. If something is very, hidden, if something is very unknown, homage or parody becomes very difficult for people to grasp.
0: Well, it becomes an in-joke. But at the same time, we don't know everything. And there are certainly in graphic design, where the world isn't as aware of the designs as we are, and even members of the field are not always aware of certain things, a parody can be lost. And then you're you're treading on weak ground. But I did an introduction for uh, William Joyce's uh, book of posters called Twisted or Swisted. Swisted. That was it. And what he did was he took all these punk bands, uh, post-punk bands, and he created Swiss posters about them. And it's a beautiful book. And you look at that stuff and you say these are great posters in and of themselves, but they're all parodies of Armin Hoffman and Joseph Mullah Brockman and Richard Losa and Max Bill.
1: Well, if you look at something like the iconic Elvis Presley cover and then the riff that The Clash did on their cover, mm-hmm. that is a parody if you are aware of the iconic Elvis Presley cover. If you're not, then it's just a nice cover of... Joe Strummer crashing his guitar.
0: Right. But the interesting part of that is even if you don't know the parody, when you find out... Then you love it even more. You love it even more. And and that happens a lot.
1: But do you think that this would be something that was acceptable in this day and age? Do you think that if that parody came out now, that Elvis Presley's estate would sue the band for copyright infringement?
0: Well, Disney used to and still does sue... People for all sorts of uses of mouse's ears and tails and and three fingered gloves. There's a ridiculousness that isn't just from today. It was Twenty years ago, thirty years ago, people were still protective of their brands. I think a true parody is one that takes the chance, and it's possible. You know, I don't. I couldn't rewrite history, but it's possible that. Back then, The Clash's marketing person would say, no, this is going to get us in trouble. Or they would say, yeah, let's take the chance because The Clash is The Clash. How do you censor punk?
1: But then again, you can also look at Andy Warhol and The Tomato Can. Campbell's could sue for copyright infringement. They
0: could, and they would have an interesting case. But what he did was create something that would have to be adjudicated as art. And that is based on precedence in terms of sales and in terms of shows and in terms of what a critic would say. But not
1: now it is. But if it had been done
0: in, in the year that it first came out, it could have changed art history. It could have. But that kind of speculation will drive us crazy in a Talmudic way.
1: I love that kind of speculation. What would the world be like if Campbell's had sued and prevented Warhol from doing any more of that work?
0: But Campbell's was smart enough not to.
1: Yeah, Mattel sues a lot of people that try to use the Barbie in some sort of re-engineered way when, in fact, I think it would be better for the brand to allow people to riff on it in that way. When you get to be that iconic and people do want to play with your brand, it means you've arrived in a certain stratosphere that is only going to be burst, bubble burst by a lawsuit.
0: Right, and there are scores of those examples. You know, when Paul Rand did the IBM as a rebus, They didn't want him to do it because they felt that now everybody would start screwing around with the logo.
1: But that's what you want people to do.
0: In in those days, they weren't sure, but then ultimately he convinced them that it was fine. So it takes a certain convincing. Sometimes it takes a lot of convincing and sometimes it doesn't take much at all when you can say it rationally like that.
1: How did you choose the case studies in the book? There are 50 case studies. There's a lot of case studies, a lot of exercises for people to play around with.
0: Well... It was actually pretty simple in one respect because although the book was always meant to be a book of exercises, what I felt I could do was include a bunch of projects that I just loved and I couldn't put in any other project under any other rubric – So I picked the pieces first and then I created the exercises based on what I saw in the pieces. So complete re-engineering. Totally. It's like a retweet. I guess. (laughs) What's a a tweet?
1: (laughs) So the book allows readers to experiment and play with styles to become more adept both inside and outside of a classroom or in life.
0: And we also give warnings.
1: Yes, you do. You do give warnings. You want to share some of the warnings?
0: Well, I think one of the warnings was just don't steal from an obvious source. But there are little tips. There are little, if you're going to do this, don't do that or something.
1: But I was really, really interested in what you had to say about the notion of play. I play so little in the practice of graphic design and branding. You state, play triggers a creative chain reaction – that results in graphic design. Without play, design is orchestrated symphony of visual and textural components neatly composed for a particular purpose. With play, design is like improvisational jazz, a concert of many signs and symbols. Duke Ellington could have been talking about playing with graphic style when he said about jazz, you've got to find some way of saying it without saying it. This applies to design and designers too. But how do you actually do this, Steve? How do you find a way of saying anything without
0: saying anything? Beats me.
1: <laughs> That's not the answer I was hoping
0: for. No, the answer is uh, when you play with something, you don't start with an endpoint. Improv requires knowledge, you have to have an understanding of the language that you're speaking. You can't just talk gibberish.
1: Actually, I think improv requires the most skills of any type of collaboration.
0: Well, I think it does. And at the same time, you're not locked into any one aspect of what you're doing. And in graphic design, at least for me, I think there's the rational, there's the irrational, which goes to what punk might have been. And then there's the I'm not sure (laughs) <laughs> and whenever I've designed something, and I haven't designed for years, I started at a point where I knew I had something to do to get across, but I didn't know how I was going to get it across, and I just started playing around with the pieces. Now, you could say, if you looked at the stuff I used to do, it shows, but you could also say that that's a really great way of getting to an end point – if you start with that endpoint, you say this is how I'm going to get there and I'm going to bevel these edges and I'm going to you know, put shadows in and I'm going to make this color that color. Part of the job is already done for you and you're just doing the technical aspects of it.
1: What do you mean? What do you mean by part of the job is already done well, for you? Well, if
0: you have the answer, where's the discovery? I mean, the answer could be something that's just part of your toolkit.
1: Well, one of the basic rules of graphic design – that we've come to accept is that you can show an apple, a picture of an apple, you can use the word apple, but you can't use both in graphic design. If you're trying to convey a message, if you're trying to say something without saying something, you can't use the word apple and show an apple.
0: Well, we've talked about this before, but Lucien Bernhard was the creator of the sac or the object poster. And he used the word matches and showed matches And that just reinforced matches. Actually, he used the word Priester and he showed matches, but Priester was matches. So I think you can show something visually and you can show it typographically and you get a different sense of it if you focus on one or focus on the other. But if you put them together, that creates an icon. It creates a logo. It creates a brand. You know, you can say beer and then have a bottle that has the beer. So I, th- I think that kind of thing, you can do both.
1: Actually, if you think about branding, you often see both. So Apple has an apple, and they also have the word mark Apple, and Nike has the word mark and then also has a symbol. Interestingly, Starbucks took the word out, and now they just have their symbol.
0: Right. But at a certain point, you can do that. At a certain point, you can eliminate something because everybody knows what you're doing. That's the great thing about uh, our ability to perceive and our cognitive sense. You know, we see something enough and we know that that lamp also, it's not just a lamp, it's light. It's not just light, it's reading. It's not just reading, it's understanding words. I mean, everything we have around us has multiple representations.
1: It's also a decorative element. Right. You state in the book that all designers use stylistic elements in their work and style is an essential marker. Obviously, choosing a style or styles is critical. How do you determine what styles to choose from if you aren't relying on your own personal style?
0: Well, I think personal style grows out of other styles, other points of view. And so I think one starts with something that feels comfortable. One starts with something that is there to explore. You know, as I said, the psychedelic thing, I never did it. And I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it well enough to do it. But when I first saw it, I hated it. You know, I just thought this is ugly. This is uh, unrational, irrational, all of those things. And I think it was because I was scared of it. And I think what you have to do in terms of style is find that comfort level and then build upon it. So if I were to take something that was from the 19th century, I would not mimic it. I would take elements of it that spoke to me and then transform it into something that had some relevance to the times it was uh, created in.
1: You state that graphic styles are composed of the good, bad, and ugly, and often the bad and ugly are the most popular. And you sort of just hinted at that a few moments ago. Why is that? Why is something ugly and and – bad, often the most popular?
0: Well, I think ugly and bad is also a subjective determination. You know, uh, Robert Hughes famously wrote the book Shock of the New, and the shock meant that there was something perverse about what the new was all about, or it was ugly. I wrote many years ago Cult of the Ugly about contemporary work. Well, you know, I've backtracked since then to say that it was really the cult of the, I don't understand it. (laughs) And the cult of, I wouldn't do it myself. The shock
1: of of the familiar. (laughs) Yeah. You know, when when you get into
0: the shock of the familiar, you know that it's not right. I mean, there's comfort and there's familiarity. And they're very different things. You can be comfortable with just about anything, but familiarity means you have to know what you're looking at.
1: But you also state that some classic design that conforms strictly to formalistic dogma are indeed admired and revered for flawless precision. So where do we net out? If if we are looking at the flawless precision and are in awe, so the Massimo Vignelli style, if we're looking at the bad and the ugly and that's revered, sort of the original Neville Brody or David Carson or Ed Fella, Where do we net out as a species and our understanding of what makes up good, respected graphic design?
0: Well, that's very hard to explain and even to uh, define. You know, I think it does come with a lot of baggage. I can appreciate Massimo Vignelli's work, but I wouldn't necessarily do what he did, even though I worked on one of the newspapers that he designed uh, and followed his format. And I would never do what David Carson or Ed Fella did, but I can appreciate it for what it said about the times that it was being produced and what it said about the individuals that produced it. But there are also moments when you kind of stand your ground, your custer, and mm-hmm. you're surrounded by the Indian nations. And uh, you say, well, I believe in such and such, and I'm not going to be thwarted from, by that belief because I have so much invested in what that belief is. And I've gone through that many times where I felt that I believed something very strongly. So I set up an opposition. I set up an enemy. And in order to have a philosophy, you have to have something f- to fight against. Absolutely. So since graphic design is the thing I do, I set up a lot of straw dogs in that respect.
1: You state that precision is a good thing in moderation. And I couldn't help but wonder if precision
0: could ever be moderate. It's a good point. It sounded good when I wrote it.
1: No, and I, I was really trying to imagine it. Is there is there such a thing as too much precision or is there such a thing as too much ugly?
0: Well, there's such a thing as too much precision if what you want is a little curve, you know, if you want a little tweak, if you want a little imprecision to add that human character to it. I mean, sometimes people are precise because they can't afford to be imprecise in the sense that they have so much wrapped up in the precision. It becomes their style. They are precisionists. And that's what I was just saying. If you invest a lot in a particular way of working, you're going to have to defend it. You're going to have to do it a lot. And then ultimately, when you shift, like Jan Schiekold did, when he famously gave up the new typography, the Neue typography, and became more of a classical designer, uh, Max Bill lashed out at him for being a traitor to the cause.
1: Same thing happened when Dylan started playing electric. Exactly. But then you also have designers that are unwilling to change their style and then have to weather the storm of being in or out of favor.
0: Right. Well, that's natural with any of the art forms. You know, you're... you're until you turn into that imminence grease. I mean, this was true with Alex Steinweiss, who I helped bring back to popularity. Yes, you did. His work was totally out of favor, and on all of a sudden, got back in favor. But it took thirty years of him out in the wilderness, self-imposed exile, actually, to come back. And that was all right. I mean, he made that decision. He he actually, in, under a pseudonym, did more modernist work.
1: Oh, really? Yeah. Well, that's a whole Pedro, other episode t- of Design Matters in the works.
0: Well, he had two pseudonyms, Pedro Blanca, which means uh, white stone, because Steinweiss means white stone. And then there was another one that I can't remember.
1: It's like J.K. Rowling coming up with a pseudonym to do a whole other series of books so people don't compare.
0: Right. And they're actually along this line. You know, some people get copied because they're so good and their work is easy to copy. And one such was Gibi the illustrator, who does beautiful surrealist things. And I once saw a portfolio of somebody who was doing very much G.B.U. except with another medium. The name was totally different and it was G.B.U.,
1: Oh, wonderful. That's what I like most about your Daily Hellers, which I didn't think we were going to talk about in today's show, but I think it's an important thing to bring up now. If anyone is really interested in graphic design history and graphic design surprises and Steve Heller's bringing certain styles or certain people back from obscurity, this is the place to find it. So, Steve, if people want to get your Daily Heller, which is a daily email of graphic design wonder, how would they go about doing that?
0: Well, they have to go on the print website, print magazine website, print.com, and there's a, uh, a subscribe. Well, there's a button for Daily Heller, and then I think there's a subscription on there. And it's six times a week.
1: How do you come up with something to write about for that many days every week? Where do you find this information? Well, there
0: are three ways. Okay. Maybe there are four. Maybe there might even be six. Maybe there
1: are infinite numbers.
0: There could be infinite. Oh, I like that voice. Um, (laughs) One way is I just have an endless box of material that I can go into and now it's... But you've sold it all. (laughs) Well, I still have tons of stuff. That's the thing. And it's all fit into this very big closet. But I find things and I can make stories out of them. You know, again, everything is design or everything has a, tells a story. So that's one part. The other part is I've been doing it long enough and I've been doing The Atlantic long enough where people send me stories. So if they're telling me they're doing X, Y, or Z, I'll interview them and do a, an item on it. And the third thing is I just make up a story. Uh, for example? Well, yesterday, for example, I did bar mats. Now, I have a collection of a few bar rugs from France that are beautiful typographic specimens in a very rough sort of way. They're kind of a dirty red and black. And I've always just had them on the floor. And when we moved, I had to fold them up and put them in a box. I was going through the box and I thought, you know, maybe I could just take some details out of this and talk about bar mats. There wasn't a lot to say about bar mats, but I did find that Baudelaire wrote something about drinking. So I put the bar mat history together with Baudelaire's Drinking, and I got a little story.
1: So as Maria Popova would say, combinatorial creativity. Exactly. <laughs> Let's talk about some of the exercises in Graphic Style Lab. You said that your favorite was number one, the very first of the 50 exercises. Create an album cover that parodies famous 1920s Russian avant-garde design Using a photo of yourself, and this was done by a designer named Andrew Swainson. Why was that something that you found to be compelling, and why is it your favorite?
0: Well, it's my favorite because, it's, in a sense, it's what prompted the book. Eric Blegvad is a cartoonist and a musician in London. He's an American expat. His father was a children's book illustrator, a very famous one, Peter Blegvad. Or maybe it's Peter who is the one who's the musician and Eric is the father. Sorry, Peter and Eric. <laughs> um, but he created this box set of his songs with a partner. And the cover of it was this beautiful replica of an Nathan Altman I think it's Nathan Altman, Russian constructivist poetry brochure cover. And he did it as a box. It's actually very narrow and and uh vertical, and he did it as a square. But he took all the elements and replaced every bit of typography and every image with the information for the album, and then the pictures of the two musicians. And then inside, it's kind of a a cabinet of wonders. And I just loved what he did. I mean, it's clear that it was an homage or a parody. It's clear that he used some other source, obviously, but it comes together in such a perfect way. The designer did a a brilliant job. And it also looks three... You know, it is three-dimensional, but the way it was photographed, it looks old. It has that aura of age, of antiquity. And so it just tickled every part of my being.
1: When I saw that exercise, it took me to some of the... 1990s work of M and Company and then some of Alex Isley's work when he first started his own business. Would you agree?
0: Yeah, there's something of that. And, you know, Paula Cher did some of that and Michael Mabry did some of that and then it was done badly by some other people. People have been borrowing from that period of time for a while and and it's interesting. But this just kind of, I hadn't seen it for a while and all of a sudden in this particular fusion of elements, it jumped up at me. I still have it sitting on one of my shelves.
1: My favorite exercise is exercise number 12. Transform a souvenir postcard into a social protest. And you show the postcard created by Andrew Sito, Save Us From This Paradise. Can you give us some of the backstory on that exercise?
0: First of all, I got this because I asked... Gail Anderson, who I've done a number of books with, to ask some kids in her class if they had anything that might work. Lucky you know. kids. Well, I like using young designers. I like using student work sometimes. It gives them a joy and it gives me a joy that I've done it. And this is one of those typical wish you were here postcards with the name of a state and then all of the Yeah, very American elements.
1: vernacular.
0: Right. And it was a political piece, I don't really remember exactly what it was about.
1: It was um, about sex trafficking, child sex trafficking. It
0: just seemed so incongruous. Save us from this paradise. Right. You know, here these uh, poor victims are being taken to God knows where. It's by no means paradise. And this designer captured it quite beautifully. So I showed the sketch as well as the uh, finished piece.
1: I think another popular exercise in the book is going to be number 23. It's already popular in our culture. It is the Bob Dylan poster that Milton Glaser did that went along for free with the purchase of Bob Dylan's Greatest Hits, the first volume of his Greatest Hits about 30 years ago. And so the exercise is parody any well-known rock and roll poster from the 60s to promote a contemporary musician – What do you think it is about that Dylan poster that has become so incredibly representative of a certain type of graphic design and has already been so copied in so much of culture?
0: You know, it's just hard to say. It's kind of these wonders. Why is I Love New York so copied? Why is Sgt. Pepper so copied? Part of it has to do with the icon itself, meaning Dylan, you know, that silhouette of Dylan, which Milton quickly admits he took from uh, Marcel Duchamp. Right. And then the hair, which he was influenced by Persian miniatures, you know, it just kind of psychedelicized without being a copy of Psychedelia, which Milton had kind of helped coin anyway. But I'm not sure why it became as iconic as it is, but it is. And so, as you say, it's been parodied many times. And in this exercise, I show the parodies that were done for Questlove, a book cover designed by Gail Anderson and Joe Newton.
1: Do you think it will ever be possible to create a parody of that poster that actually is able to recapture the attention of an entirely new generation of people?
0: You know, I think you have to be really far removed, and then I think it's over anyway. You know, how many times has the Mona Lisa been parodied? How many times has Grant Wood's American Gothic been parodied? So much so that it's become, you know, a cliché of parody. I had Milton once when I was doing the Times Book Review for Bob Dylan's Chronicles, his his memoir book. I called Milton and I said, can we just reuse uh, the Dylan poster— And maybe you can write something on it or maybe he said that to me. But what happened was he gave me the poster and he wrote the lyrics and he said, what lyrics would you like? And I told him my favorite lyrics were from my back pages. I was so much younger than I'm younger. I'm older than that now. Or I was so much older than I'm younger than that now. That's
1: right. Whatever. That's it. That's it. I want to ask you one last question, and it might bring us back to some of that nihilistic tone we started with at the beginning of the show.
0: Nihilistic.
1: <laughs> yes. You write that, Play is abandoned, born of exploration. Play activates that sense of uncertainty about what lies around the corner, yet you go there anyway. I often consider anything uncertain, Steve, to be somewhat terrifying, And I was wondering if you think that uncertainty in graphic design is a good thing.
0: Well, I think uncertainty in any art form is a good thing, which doesn't mean that I follow that path, but it's nice to write about.
1: How do you hold on to the notion that uncertainty isn't going to kill you?
0: Well, it could, but then you're surprised. Steve, thank you so much for
1: being on Design Matters. Love
0: being here and love you
1: love you too to keep up with what Stephen heller is thinking and reading and writing about visit his blog the daily heller this year we're celebrating the 10th anniversary of design matters and i'd like to thank you for listening and remember we can talk about making a difference we can make a difference or we can do both i'm debbie millman and i look forward to talking with you again soon
0: Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters and Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.